Kind of one of those eh, cloudy days. And I tell you, there's a funk around the station today uh, because finally the judge uh, said that, you know, uh, we're going to release the interrogation video that the police did, four hours of it, to the media uh, because the this is within with regard to the van attack that took place last April here in Toronto. And this is just hours after they caught the accused from the van attack and they interrogated him. And the judge said, you know, there's no risk to a jury poll because it is going to be uh, a trial by judge only. And that's why we'll be able to hear some of the audio. Now, I have mixed feelings on actually playing this audio, but it's my job. I don't own the station. Uh, My mixed feelings are because of uh, I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know. Um, if it's the right thing to do uh, to hear this audio or the, or if it's going to do any good at all. But I guess if this gives you any clarity on what's going on and maybe um, tips you off to some warning bells from somebody in your life that might be feeling the way this guy did, might be going down that path, then that's a good thing. That's all I can say about that. I read this really interesting article about the rise of incels uh, yesterday that Chris sent me at Vox.com, and it is so uh, long. It's basically a history of the incel movement that was actually started, oddly enough, it's called, in, it's, incel stands for involuntarily celibate. Oddly enough, this was started by a Toronto woman And it was started as a place where, and she's a queer woman, where you could go in the 90s and meet other people that are awkward and not, you know, not able to have sex. They're involuntarily celibate and you can help each other out. And then somehow things got really dark uh, somewhere around the 2000s. And there is a character by the name of um, Roger Elliott that features prominently within the incel community. And I say character, which probably is the wrong word to choose, but he um, was a member of the incel community, was a young man with a lot of rage and hate. And in 2015, he shot six people in California and then shot himself. And before that, he let people know on the online community, because this largely operates online, the incel community. They all get together, bash women, uh, talk about their what they'd like to do, ways that they could accomplish these things, and um, egg each other on. And so he then kills himself, and he becomes like the leader of this subculture. I understand that the woman in Toronto, we're trying to get a hold of her, is is now trying to turn things around by going back on. Because the women, it used to be men and women in the incel community at the very beginning. Uh, all the women left, of course, because you know, they were not wanted there and they saw how dark it was. A lot of other men left because they saw that it wasn't going the way that they thought it should go. And now uh, it's a very dark and very scary movement. There are people that say... Um, including the CIA, that um, this new Joker film might inspire some incels to attack. Uh, so that is, is a big fear. So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to start to, uh, well, we'll introduce the fellows. Chris Creston is here. Dave is here as well. Shaggy Dave opping the show. And we also have uh, retired homicide detective John Biggerstaff in studio with us. I think what we'll do is start off the show by playing some of the audio from this four-hour interrogation. I told you a little bit about um, Roger Elliott and who he was. And in the interrogation, I'm not going to... I am not... Is it Elliot Rogers? Sorry, Chris is, is uh, correcting me on that. Elliot Rogers is the name of the guy that, that shot people in 2015. So I apologize for that. I'm not going to mention the name of the accused in the van attack because I just really don't want to give him... Uh, you know, any more uh, press. 
He's in jail right now. He's awaiting trial. Uh, but here he is during the interrogation. He's being interrogated by a polygraph expert who is also a uh, detective. And he's asking him about his communication with Elliot Rogers, the Elliot Rogers that shot those people and became an incel hero back in 2015. I believe that he told me that uh, other members of uh, uh, 4chan were giving him uh, encouraging support so that he would have the courage to uh, start his rebellion. Right, 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 okay. And so you last speak to him on March 20th. May 20th. May 20th, I'm sorry, May 20th, 2014. Yes. He commits his, his, his acts on the 23rd of May. Yes. And uh, when did you learn that uh, what he had done? I saw it on the news later that night. Later on the, on the 23rd? Yes. Okay, and what did you think? Uh, I thought that I came to the understanding that this is the mission that he had to uh, carry out. Okay, all right. And anything else? I felt kind of uh, proud of him for uh, his acts of bravery. Okay, all right. And what about uh, how you started to, 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 to change your thinking? What was, was, any of the, was, was, that, was any of that going on? I was starting to feel uh, radicalized at that time. You were, okay. And when you say radicalized, what do you mean by that? Meaning I felt it was time to take action and not just sit on the sidelines and to just uh, fester in my own sadness. Right on, okay. That is uh, the voice of the accused van attacker and uh, Rob Thomas, who is a polygraph expert and a detective who's interviewed him for four hours. That's hours after that van attack. Now, I was on the air during the van attack, and maybe that's why I have a real problem playing this audio, because it's I think it's hard to hear not only for um, those of us that were reporting on what was going down in our city, but it's also hard to hear. Uh, the cold, matter-of-fact way that this guy is talking hours after killing 10 people and mowing over 16, injuring 16 people in the city of Toronto. And I worry about the people who have PTSD uh, that were on Young Street that day. And I worry about the survivors. I worry about the victims' families. But I think uh, what is most striking about this interrogation is just the way the accused comes off. Just so matter-of-factly, like it's just another day in his life. Not a big deal. There's no emotion. You would expect, and I think a lot of people wanted to hear this because they're like, I want to hear what a guy like this would be thinking. I want to hear the rage in his voice. I want to understand what, what would drive you to this. And I don't know if it really tells us anything, but he talks about becoming rad- radicalized. So this, this is, starting, this is a, a process. It's not something that just... I mean, the, the, the day that you realized that uh, you were a celeb was the day that you were ridiculed by these girls at this party. But on, on Halloween of 2013. Right. But then as you got to know uh, Elliot and then uh, understanding his, his, uh, his uh, mission and uh, what he had done, you began to, to start become radicalized in terms of your thought process. Yes. Okay. And... So what takes place next as part of this, this, this growing radicalization? Most of it was actually just thinking okay. and daydreaming. Okay, all right. So the thinking and daydreaming, when did that start? That started about a month after the rebellion. 
in uh, May of 2014. Okay, so... So, I mean, so in June, I started uh, thinking about this stuff. And then that continued right up till about a month ago? Yes, which is when I uh, booked uh, the uh, van with the rider okay. in order to uh, use as a tool for rebellion. Okay, all right. So t t take me through that process. What was going through your mind and how was, you know, what were you thinking when you were doing all of this? What was going on? I was thinking that it was a time that I uh, stood up to the Chads and Stacys. If you're wondering what Chads and Stacys are, the incel movement have their own um, lingo that they use online. Uh, they feel that they're rejected by 80% uh, of the women, the, the most beautiful of them being Stacy's. They refer to them as Stacy's. And the only women that they, the only men that they want to get with are Chad's. These guys have chiseled features. They're the jocks. And so um, he goes on to describe, and this part, I'm going to warn you, uh, is, is going to be tough to hear he describes how he carried out the van attack that day. You're at a stoplight, you said? Yes. You're at, and now, are you faced with a red light? You're stopped? Uh, yes, but as soon as it turned green, I uh, started going. Okay, and it, just walk me through this, okay, step by step. So it turns green, and what are you thinking? I'm thinking that uh, this is it. I see all these people. It's uh, time to uh, go for it. Time to go for it. And what do you do? I... Uh, floor the pedal, yeah. I speed the van towards them, and I uh, allow the van to uh, collide with them. Okay. And then what happens? Uh, some people get knocked out of the way, some people roll o over the top of the van. Okay. And then what, what happens? I uh, continue doing that until... Um, I, in fact, actually, to be honest, the only reason I stopped my attack was because someone's drink got splashed on my uh, windshield, and I was worried that I would uh, crash the van anyway, so I decided, okay, now I, I wanted to do more, but I've kind of been foiled by a lack of visibility, so then that's when I uh, pulled, I turned right, and I pulled, and I saw the cops approaching, so I decided to pull over and get out of my van. Okay. How long do you travel from the moment that you you decide this is it, the light turns green, and you uh, mount the sidewalk, is that right? Yes. To the time that you stop. How long in terms of the distance would that have been? About two, traffic, two or three traffic lights. Two or three traffic lights. Okay. So you turn right at what street? I don't remember which street. I wasn't paying attention. Why do you turn right? Um, because I, because there wasn't any convenient place to stop at Young, and I, and like I said, that there was a lack of visibility on my windshield. I could hear the cops coming anyway, so the, the, when I turned right, there was a convenient place to pull over on the sidewalk. Okay. Okay, and so you're now, so you're, 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 you, you physically stop your vehicle. Yes. You physically stop. So you end the assault. Yes. Okay. Um, and you end it because you can't see. Yes. And you knew the cops were coming. Yes. Okay. And he encounters Officer Ken Lamb, who is the hero that day, for not doing what the accused van attacker wanted. Thomas asks what happened next. Okay. And so then what happens at that point? Uh, I, I see a patrol car pull over, and I hear the cops screaming at me to get out. So I get out, and I... Uh, 
point my wallet at the cop in it with the intent for it to be confused with the gun so that I could be fatally shot. Okay. And was that something you were thinking about? Yes. I know. I mean, I, I, what I'm saying even, is... Even before had I uh, premediated as an attempted uh, suicide by cop. You wanted to you wanted to be killed by the police? Yes. Okay. Um, can I ask why you decided to, to, to equip yourself with a wallet and not something else? Uh, I was worried. I was thinking about purchasing a toy gun, right. but I was kind of paranoid that some, for whatever reason, the Rydal rental company would ask to see my pockets or any bag if I chose to bring that, so I decided to go as stealthy as possible so no one suspects anything. Okay, all right. Nevertheless, you get out of the, the van, the officer or his board, oh, sorry, uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong because I want to make sure I get this right. You get out of the van because the officer orders you out? Yes. Okay. Uh, and you want to uh, die by, uh, by, by suicide by police, uh, so you point your wallet at him? Yes. Okay, and, and uh, do you say anything to the officer? Uh, I actually told him that I had a gun in my pocket, which okay. was untrue. Right. Uh, then I, had to, I twice I stuck my left hand in my uh, pocket just to uh, provoke a, a reaction. Okay. Uh, that, uh, he, unfortunately he didn't react, right. so then I ended up being ordered to the ground, so I knew at that point he's not going to shoot me, so uh, I've lost, so I, just, so I had no choice but to just get on the ground. Okay. I realized I had no choice but to get on the ground because I was probably going to be uh, tackled anyways or tased, and if I'm, if I'm going to live, I'd rather not encounter a physically painful experience, so I decided I have no choice but to admit defeat at that point. Right, okay. That's quite an experience. That is quite a... Uh... Not the usual everyday experience. No, no, it's not. No, it's not, not the usual everyday experience, says the accused van attacker after killing 10 people and injuring at least 16. Who knows how many people have PTSD from watching all that go down on that absolutely beautiful uh, April afternoon. It is hard to hear. What's very hard to hear is the cold matter-of-fact manner that this guy um, speaks with two hours after doing this. You would expect some rage, but, you know, at the end of the day, who can relate to someone like this? Uh, so what we, as normal people, would expect, y you don't always get. I want to take a quick break. What you've been listening to is the the actual um, police interrogation tape and parts of a four-hour interrogation with the van attacker. I'm not going to use his name because I don't think he deserves to have his name used. I think you know who it is. Um, but in these attacks, a lot of the times the the attacker will die, will kill himself, will die by cop like this guy admits that he wanted to happen. And so we don't get to know what they would say if the family of the victims were in the room. That is exactly what the interrogator asks him next. I'm going to ask you this because uh, it's important. Um, Ten people died here today. Um, Fifteen people were seriously injured. Um, I think it's important to ask how you feel about that. I feel like uh, I accomplished my mission. You feel like you accomplished your mission? Yes. Okay. 
if the families of those people who were murdered and were injured were in this room right now, what would you say to them? I honestly don't know what I would say. Would you apologize? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know what it'd be like to hear that if you have a friend or family member that was one of the victims, uh, whether they were hurt or killed. Um, But I'm sure that just is infuriating and uh, heartbreaking. John Biggerstaff joins us right now. He's a retired homicide detective. John, welcome to the show. It's it's good to have you in here in person. Thank you. This audio is hard to hear. Uh, The van attack interrogation. Uh, took place between a polygraph expert and the accused. It was four hours. Is that normal, four hours? Four hours would border on a lengthy interrogation. Okay. And so they brought in a polygraph expert. His name is Detective Rob Thomas. He, uh, the accused is not hooked up to the machine. He's dressed in what looks like white papers in a painter suit with booties. Why the suit and why the polygraph expert? Well, first and foremost, the suit is a result of the fact that the police have seized his clothes. Those clothes could have some evidentiary value in this investigation. They'll be sent for forensic analysis. Um, They replace the clothes with the the paper jumpsuit. Um, Rob Thomas is an experienced uh, interviewer and interrogator. Part of his role is also that of the polygraph examiner. But most importantly, he specializes in the analysis of the information provided during interrogations and interviews. Okay, so he comes off as extremely cordial. I didn't play any of this, but at the very beginning, what you don't see is uh, the accused sitting in a room empty. Uh, Rob Thomas walks in. He's very cordial. He pulls his chair closer in to the accused. He he shakes the accused's hand. The the accused actually stands up and is very polite with him. And he then sits down and tells him to speak from the heart. It's not anything like a TV interrogation. There are 10 people dead. There are 15 injured at this point. We know that Rob Thomas knows all this. How important are those first five minutes to that police interrogation? They're critical. Um, first and foremost, Rob Thomas, his, his end goal is to obtain a confession. It's the best piece of evidence that could be used in court when a person in their own words admits their guilt to this crime. But he has to do it lawfully. And in order to do it lawfully, it can't be oppressive. He must ensure that um, the accused person understands his rights, that he's been cautioned that he doesn't have to talk to the police. And you have to be polite because you have to develop that rapport in order to get that person to communicate with you. You've spoken to accused killers before. It, how does this guy's manner come off? It's, it's, it's matter of fact. It's calm. Is that unusual or is that normal? It's difficult to categorize whether it's normal, but my experience has always been that First of all, they don't really understand what position they're in at that point in time. They don't really know where Rob Thomas is going to come from. So they want to try and act as normal as possible. They want to give the impression that this is not something that they are fearful of. Hmm. Yet he admits that he was fearful of the reason why he pulled over that van is there was drink on, on the van. Somebody, somebody's drink that he hit spilled, the, the, spilled on the window. He couldn't see, so he had to pull over. He also admits that he decided to um, get down on the ground because he didn't want to be chased. Right, so he has some sort of uh, mindset that um, as terrible as the acts that he's committed against other human beings, he doesn't want to suffer anything for these consequences, including the fact that he doesn't want to crash the vehicle 
causing himself harm, mm-hmm. and he certainly doesn't want to be harmed by the police when they go to effect his arrest. Unless they're going to kill him. Unless they were going to kill him. It has to be painless. Yes. The detective uses affirmative language. I want to play a clip for you. It's just a quick clip. Have a listen. I felt it was time to take action and not just sit on the sidelines and to just uh, fester in my own sadness. Right on. Okay. All right. Right on. Okay. All right. How does this serve police efforts? Is this a usual demeanor of a detective during an interrogation? I, I think Rob's trying to continue with the open line of communication. He's trying to make the accused person feel as comfortable as possible so that he can elicit as much information. So at this point in time in the interrogation, and I'm not sure at at what mark or minute or hour it occurred, I think Rob is still just playing him along to keep keep him on track and to get him to keep providing the details as much as he can. I want to ask you, um, how much planning, how much planning goes into the interrogation before you walk into that room? Because I, I assume you've been in that role before. And what happens post-interrogation beyond paperwork? Like, what happens to you, the interrogator? Well, the planning portion is um, it's extensive. The most important part of any interrogation is to make sure that you're well-prepared, that you have as much information as possible about the accused, about the event, that you have deliberately decided where you're going to take them and how you're going to elicit that information. So planning is everything. Post the interview, um, you know, different investigators have different duties. They'd continue on in that shift before they would complete it. Um, if you're asking me how does Rob Thomas deal? Yeah, how does how do you go home and sleep at night after that? Well, I think as any professional in any any occupation, you know, when you when you decide to commit yourself to that profession, then you do it with as much effectiveness and force as you can. And I think that's how you adapt and how you manage dealing with these types of events. I understand that during the interrogation, and I don't know where it was because it's four hours long. I admittedly didn't watch all of it. I, I mean, I was given the, the clips to play. Um, that the interrogator caught him in a lie involving his father because his father had already given a, a statement um, and been, in, you know, interviewed. So he caught him in a lie. Is that how important are things like that when you go to court? Well, the important part is Rob Thomas is trying to determine by his behavior and by his answers whether or not he's being truthful. So when Rob has that ammunition held back, that hold back information that the police knew clearly that he was lying because they knew his father had driven him because his father had admitted to it. Mm. He wants to confront him with that near the end to see whether or not he will defer and be honest enough to say, yes, I lied to you. Mm. Because one of the things you like to say to them is, well, if you've lied to me about this, what else have you lied to me about? Right. So it, it's just a manner of eliciting the truth by by backstopping what you know he's not being so you, truthful So you, you're letting him know I'm on to you. Yeah. Like, how... I want to wrap with this. How big of a risk is the release of this man attack um, police er- interrogation? Because, you know, one could worry that we could possibly inspire other incels to launch similar attacks on women and innocent people. And this is exactly what the van attacker wants. Right. So I, I, I think when we look at the judge's decision, it was one that was balanced upon the public's right to know that justice is seen to be fair and transparent, balanced against you know, what would be the residual effect of others watching this type of uh, conduct and thinking, you know, how should I behave or, you know, should I follow suit? Um, so it, it's a difficult one. Yeah. But 
you know, the judge was very learned in, in, in her reasoning. And it's unusual because most statements can be released, but usually after they've been tendered in evidence, which this statement has not to this point in time. Mm-hmm. Her key was that it wasn't going to uh, influence a jury because he's being tried by judge alone. I want to thank you for your time today, John. Thanks so much for coming in in person. Okay, thank you. Cheers.